0: I'm Amanda Olberg, Managing Editor of Education Next. We invite you to join this week's Education Next podcast, available online Wednesday morning each week at educationnext.org. Over the past decade, a growing number of urban school districts have responded to the presence of charter schools by providing their own schools with some of the same flexibilities that charters enjoy. But few have gone as far as Indianapolis, where the district is now authorizing what it calls innovation network schools. District schools that are run by outside contractors with their own independent boards and full charter style autonomy. My guest today sees what's happening in Indianapolis, not just as a promising local development, but as a potential model for the reform of large city school districts in the US. I'm Marty West editor-in-chief of Education Next, and I'm joined today by David Osborne, director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Reinventing America's Schools Project and the author of a new article on the Indianapolis Innovation School Model that's available now on the journal's website. David, welcome back to the Ednext Podcast.
1: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
0: So you're writing about school districts around the nation. We recently ran an article by you on what's happening in Denver what makes Indianapolis worth knowing about for those of us who follow school reform?
1: Well, there are two things, really. The first is that since 2001, Indianapolis has had the only mayor in the country with the power to authorize charter schools, and the mayor uh, has authorized many schools, has closed those that didn't succeed, and there are now 35 charters on 40 campuses in Indianapolis Um authorized by the mayor and they perform quite well. So that's number one. The district, which of course faced a lot of competitive pressure, lost a lot of students to charters, uh, responded finally by sort of embracing the autonomy and accountability that is behind the success of, of the charter model and creating these, uh, things called innovation network schools. They got a, a state law passed in 2014 enabling to, them to do this. And interestingly, at the time the teachers union said, well, why not let traditional schools become these innovation schools? And so they added that to the bill. So some of them are new startups, some of them are existing charters that convert to innovation school status, and some of them are existing traditional public schools that convert to innovation status. But as you said, they all have boards of their own. They're nonprofits. The the teachers work for the nonprofit, not for the district. And yet they're part of the district, and the district gets to count their performance scores and its own performance score. They use district buildings. Um, So this is a, a traditional school board and superintendent embracing the charter model, but bringing it into the district. And that is a very unusual combination.
0: And as you suggest, the story really starts with the mayor being granted the uh, ability to authorize charter schools, something that's unique nationwide. This happened, really, the case for this was made by uh, Democrat Bart Peterson when he was running for mayor back in 1999. How did that idea come about?
1: Well interestingly there was a Republican state senator who had who introduced a charter bill for 6 years in a row and it lost every time. And when Peterson ran she suggested to him that they include giving the mayor the power to charter to authorize charters and he said sure because of course you know mayors of cities like Indianapolis are very concerned that they they're losing their middle class and that they can't retain enough of the middle class and the biggest reason for that is usually the public schools so peterson understood that if he could create quality public schools he would he would be able to keep more of the tax paying citizens that he wanted in the city within its borders so once he was elected with him pushing Democrats and this Republican senator pushing Republicans, they were able to get enough bipartisan support to get the bill passed. Uh, Indianapolis, Indiana's first charter law passed in 2001, and it in- included the ability for uh, mayors to charter.
0: A few years after that, I think it was 2006, I had the opportunity to visit Indianapolis when the mayor's charter school office was being considered for the prestigious Innovations in American Government Award from Harvard's Kennedy School, and the success of the schools that had been created under the program was obvious, but one question that many of us outsiders were asking at the time was, well, what's going to happen when a new mayor comes into office? And I guess we got to see the answer to that question a bit sooner than Peterson had hoped when he was defeated by a Republican, Greg Pollard, in 2007. What's happened with the mayor's charter school initiative since that time?
1: Well, you're right. Everyone was worried uh, because a Republican defeated Peterson uh, after Peterson had been in for two terms. But he kept Peterson's, the key staffers from Peterson's charter office on. They were the only people that he kept on in his administration from Peterson's administration. And they just, they just continued to pursue the same strategy, um, being very careful on the front end to make sure that they didn't authorize charters that were going to fail. And then if a charter did perform poorly, being sure to close it. So they, uh, they authorized about 30 charters and closed seven or eight over the course of those, his two terms. And then uh, a Democrat was elected after two terms Joe Hogsett. And he, again, continued. Uh, so there's been real continuity. It's it's very interesting. that, And uh, people in Indianapolis will argue that since the mayor is held accountable by voters for the quality of the schools that he authorizes, uh, there is a real incentive to do a good job.
0: It's interesting because it's not obvious in prospect that that would be the case, right? Uh, we know that it's politically very difficult for a school board, a superintendent to close low performing schools, whether they be traditional public or charter and a mayor, you might expect to be more uh, attuned to those political dynamics than say a uh, nonprofit authorizer that is not politically accountable, but the folks in Indianapolis really make a case that actually the incentives are quite well aligned. And, um, uh, that it actually turns out to be a strength rather than a weakness of the system.
1: It is interesting. And I think it's an open question because we only have one city where it's happening. Um, and it is a city that has a long tradition of of really quite good mayors going back to the 1980s um, and good government. So you could argue that Indianapolis is an outlier and If other mayors got this power, they would be making political decisions and they wouldn't close failing schools and so on. But on the other hand, if you look at when mayors take over school systems or get the power to appoint the school board, cities like Boston, New York, Cleveland, Washington, D.C., there's there's something about being mayor where you really are held accountable in a way that a school board member is not always held accountable uh... first off you get pretty big turnout at your elections and it's as we know in school board elections often there's ten or fifteen percent who turn out and therefore the teachers unions and the other unions who all vote you know have much more impact than other citizens it's a little different for the mayor um... so i think what we've seen is that around the country once mayors are held responsible for the quality of the education system Um, they tend to to do a pretty good job.
0: So let's turn to the other side of the story now, which is really what's going on in the school district itself in response to the presence of the mayor's charter school program. And that side of the story really starts in 2011 when an organization called the Mind Trust issued a mammoth 150-page report recommending a total overhaul of the district's governance. Who... Who is the mine trust, and what exactly did their report say?
1: Well, when when Bart Peterson got the power to authorize, he put one of his young staff people, David Harris, in charge of that process, and they created a charter office. And they did quite a good job, and then when Peterson uh, left office, he created he and David Harris created. Essentially, one way you can think about it is it's a venture capital, a nonprofit venture capital firm for the charter sector. Uh, they raised a lot of money for the Mind Trust, and the Mind Trust, in turn, has focused on bringing entrepreneurial folks to Indianapolis to create charters, to train teachers. They've brought Teach for America, they brought TNTP, they brought Stanford Children, and they have helped to subsidized the creation of, uh, several dozen schools. It began with charters and now they're, they're, uh, incubating innovation network schools.
0: And with this report, they set out to lay out a set of recommendations with respect to governance reforms that they thought would make those organizations be able to operate more effectively.
1: Yeah. Basically they said they had two big points the way I see it. Um, one was, let's put the mayor in charge of public education. Let's have the, the school board, well, the mayor and city council, let's have the school board appointed three by the mayor, two by the city council. That didn't fly. The state legislature would not go that far. But the second recommendation was essentially that the district should start treating all of its schools as if they were charter schools. Um, they should authorize them. They should give them performance contracts the schools should have their own boards, they should have autonomy, um, they should in essence run like nonprofits, um, and they should be held accountable and closed uh, and replaced when they're not successful. So um, that idea, that report was very controversial and was rejected by a lot of people, but it, it started folks thinking, it started them talking, and As you can see from the description, it essentially outlined what became, uh, a few years later, the Innovation Network Schools Bill.
0: And what enabled that change was ultimately changing the majority on the school board, I assume.
1: Yeah, the folks, the coalition, the reform coalition, which pushed for an appointed school board and lost, then turned their attention to, I believe it was the 2012 elections, school board elections. It's a seven-member board. There were four open seats, and reformers won all four. So now they had a a majority. They invited the old superintendent to retire and uh, hired a new one, Dr. Louis Farabee, who has a huge commitment to school autonomy because he started out as a principal and understands its value. Um, And so between the board... The mayor's office and Dr. Farabee, you, you had a lot of support for this idea, and that's why that the state law was passed.
0: And now what share of schools or students in Indianapolis Public Schools are part of the Innovation Network model? Um,
1: this year, it's about 10 percent. And we're talking, by the way, Indianapolis has 11 school districts. Mm-hmm. Um, Indianapolis Public Schools is the largest. It has about 30,000 students. There's close to 15,000 in charters, and of those 30,000, about 10% this year are innovation network schools. There will be there are about nine now. Four more will open next fall, and some of these schools build out a a grade at a time. You know, they might start with kindergarten and first grade, and then next year add second grade, and so on. So next year. Between charters and innovation network schools, it will probably be about 50 percent of the students, of the public school students, in the geography of Indianapolis public schools.
0: And as you noted earlier, some of these innovation network schools are actually charters that converted back to in-district status. And this was an attractive deal for them primarily because of access to facilities for which they don't get funding in Indiana, as I understand it.
1: Yes, exactly. Exactly. They, They were, they're at a more than a four thousand dollar per child uh, disadvantage compared to the traditional public schools in Indianapolis because of the way the funding works Um, basically they don't get free buildings and they don't get local property tax so you had a situation uh, where Indianapolis public schools were shrinking and had a lot of empty seats and a lot of buildings that were only half utilized and then you had this booming charter sector that you know schools were starting up in old grocery stores, um, so it was kind of a natural. Let's what the district had to offer was the buildings, um, and what the charters had to offer was high-performing schools, and and, and so they they got married.
0: Now a lot of people will say, as you lay it out here, this approach makes all the sense in the world, but at the same time, people may worry that. The district's commitment to this approach really rests in the hands of an elected school board. As you say, the effort to shift to an appointed model was unsuccessful. Uh, And so, you know, do you envision a situation where a change in majority on the school board calls into question the durability of what's been created? I don't think it will
1: happen in the next few years. Uh, the, in the 2014 election, uh, the other three seats went to reformers. And then in 2016, basically six – there was an opposition that organized and ran candidates. They all lost. Uh, six of the seven are firm reformers who back this model completely. And the seventh is has been described to me as sort of somewhere midway between – the reformers and the opposition. So it's a quite a strong majority for now. Um, I think it depends on wh- how well this works.
0: Yeah, it sounds like the nice thing is it sounds like we will have the opportunity to see how it works over a period of several years. As you note in the piece, it's really much too early to talk about the academic results, especially with what's going on in the innovation network schools themselves, uh, given in part some challenges due to how testing has changed in, in Indiana and the like. Um, so we really do need time to watch this unfold to see the extent to which it really deserves to be a model for other cities.
1: Yeah, it's a couple, we need a couple more years. Um, there really isn't data yet, but um, the signs, the signs look good. If you just look at how parents are responding, enrollment at these schools, when they, when they essentially hand over a failing traditional public school to an, an outside operator, whether it's a charter or not, to be an innovation network school, the enrollment has surged. Um, so parents seem to be excited about it. But, you know, it, it, it'll take a few years. And and as you know, it, this work is so hard. I mean, educating poor inner city kids is, is really tough. And not all these schools are going to succeed because not all of any kind of public school succeeds in the inner city. Um, And that's one reason why the charter model works, is that you say, okay, they're not all going to succeed. Let's close the ones that don't and replace them with stronger models. So in any case, the one thing I would worry about is if there's some kind of scandal Mm -hmm. It certainly undermine the reformers and lead to a different result on election day. Uh, But you know, so far, you've even got teachers buying into becoming Innovation Network schools, leaving the union, leaving the district as an employee, uh, becoming the employee of a nonprofit. Um uh, that's,
0: that's pretty amazing. And so hopefully it will be uh, an opportunity to see whether we can achieve not just perfection, which we'll never achieve in the governance of urban school systems, but maybe a system that does continuously improve and, and make progress.
1: Exactly. We're where the schools that are really strong are asked to create a new one, and the schools that are really weak are replaced.
0: So before I let you go, David, I understand that you have a new book that's coming out this fall. Do you want to tell listeners about it?
1: Uh, sure. Uh, it's called, surprisingly, Reinventing America's Schools, Creating a Education System for the 21st Century. And the argument uh is will be very familiar by by this point in the discussion the argument is that we should quit thinking about charter schools as an innovation around the edges of the public school system whether we like them or hate them or are indifferent and we should realize that what we're doing is by the seat of our pants developing a more effective way to organize the public school system in the 21st century so I'm, my, the argument of my book is that we should, tr- whatever we call them, we should treat all public schools like charter schools. They shouldn't be able to exist for 50 years if they're dropout factories, if, if, if they're failing every year. They should be replaced by better models, and we should have lots of different kinds of schools. So I look at in depth at New Orleans, which is 95% charter and the fastest improving city in the country. Washington, D.C., which is 46% charter and the fastest improving of the big cities that take the National Assessment of Educational Progress, the NAEP test, and Denver, which is also one of the fastest improving big cities in the country, uh, all of which have figured out how to embrace the charter model um, three different paths. And then you have Indianapolis and you have other cities, Memphis, Camden, New Jersey. So this idea is spreading because it works and because particularly in the inner cities, we're we're desperate. (laughs) You know, what we've been doing for the last 50 years isn't working. So we have to try something new.
0: Well, it's an argument that's timely, especially the uh, part about focusing on how districts can respond and try and treat all schools like charters an argument that's timely in part because the rate of charter expansion seems to have slowed down a little bit in the next couple of years. So it may be that continued growth in the uh, autonomous school sector has to occur within districts rather than through the continued creation of new schools.
1: Yeah. And that is what's happening in Indianapolis, in Denver and uh, in Camden, New Jersey, and, and other places. Um, And it, you know, it it just makes perfect sense.
0: My guest today has been David Osborne, director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Reinventing America's Schools Project. His article on the Indianapolis Innovation School model is available now at educationnext.org. David, thanks for being part of the podcast. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to the Ednext Podcast. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps us find more listeners and more listeners to find us.